Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast. This week we were joined by a woman who shared with us her experience of growing up in Peel in the Second World War. We discussed why it's so difficult for new mums to talk about their mental health and I went along to meet local primary school students celebrating a big birthday. But first, we had to reflect on the terrible scenes experienced in France the previous weekend. This weekend, the world was shot by the terror attacks in Paris. More than 100 people were killed across the city. And earlier today, the Isle of Man took part in a minute's silence to honour those who were caught up in the violence. And the topic of our safety here on the island has just been covered in depth on Talking Heads. And Manx Radio's mandate programme this morning heard from local people who are currently in Paris. Now, in our family, we never keep world events from our children, but it really did strike me this morning at the breakfast table that my eight-year-old knew so much about what had happened, and it made me think about how we talk openly and honestly about devastating world news without instilling a sense of fear in our children. And, Kate, I was talking to you about this, and I find it really, really difficult. Yeah, I, I can completely understand why why you find it difficult. Personally, and obviously I'm speaking as someone who doesn't have children, but I think it is about having an open and honest conversation and answering their questions uh, when they come up. I was thinking back um, to 2001 when I was just nine years old or ten years old when the um, attacks took place on 9-11. And my mum said something interesting to me this morning about that day because I became really quite obsessed, I suppose, about watching the rolling uh, news stations and watching rolling news on television um, after the 9-11 attacks. And my mum was saying that there was a point that evening where she came in and she switched the television off and said, look, I think that's enough now. Um, We're going to switch it off. And she said to me this morning, you know, that was easy in 2001 because we didn't have mobile phones with the internet on. We didn't have iPads or tablets that we had in our bedrooms. And I think it must be so much more difficult to kind of choose that point when you stop doing it. So I guess it is kind of about, though, watching it with them. And as I say, having that conversation and answering those questions. I think it's... um It is interesting. I'm not at a point where any of our children have got their own phones or or tablets or devices like that yet. But Joe, yours do, don't they? They do. And actually, I'd just like to read a couple of comments from it because I think it's really interesting that my son, who is 11, um, I came back from doing the breakfast show on Saturday morning. It finishes at half past eight. So the news really was he just got up and he switched it on and he was really, really interested in what was happening. And um, before I got a chance to speak to him, he was already watching it at home. And on his Instagram account, he had already put up the Eiffel Tower with the peace sign in front of it and he put hashtag pray for Paris and another girl said why and he said because lots of people died in Paris last night because of terrorists um, and she says why uh, oh what happened and um, it goes on and another person who's again 11 years old said terrorists are mean another girl said there's no point in terrorism and they actually started having a conversation about it and these kids are 11 years old and I was quite shocked by it so I got home and we sat down and I explained to him about it and do you know what he actually knew more about it than I did it was incredible. I think the thing that really gets me, especially looking at my eldest son, who is only eight this morning, um, and one of the first things he said was, like, well, I'd never go to Paris. 
And I just thought, gosh, you know, they've just growing up with this sense of fear and not wanting to do things. And as much as a mother, I'd want to say, you know, when you're older, and I did say, you know, when you're older, you can't live your life like that. You have to go off and, and, and do your exploring, do whatever you, it is you want to do. I know I'd be terrified at the thought of them going off and doing anything like that. Yeah, those comments came about, about, you know, how safe is it for travelling? And also because their dad travels all the time so they were worried straight away for daddy you know should he be traveling but at the same time i still think that they think they're invincible so we you know you have that flash moment where you think that maybe i shouldn't go on that plane um but i try to explain in situations like this security tightens up more than ever um and when 9-11 happened my husband actually was traveling at the time um and as he said it's actually the safest time to travel I think also you have to keep in mind whenever we have these conversations that terrorism feeds on fear. That is, you know, by far one of the, the biggest reasons for it. And I think it's a really obvious thing to say, but I honestly, honestly think that you have to carry on and you have to carry on as normally as possible because otherwise you're afraid and, and that is winning. Dr Rebecca Miller is a consultant radiologist at Nobles Hospital and was outlining some of the differences between a radiologist and a radiographer for us earlier. Now, in your day-to-day job, Rebecca, what sort of things are you actually looking for? Well, I'm a general radiologist with a specialist interest in breast radiology. So in my general job, we will do a vast... We, we cover all the different sort of patients you'll see in the hospital so we have a broad spectrum of what's going on from the elderly to the oncology cancer patients to the paediatric patients but what we will also do is we'll cover the GP patients so we see a whole spectrum of illness some of it is benign and harmless fortunately unfortunately again some of it isn't so we see we see everything so generally when people come to see you they are dealing with a a certain level of concern of worry um, how do you put them at ease, I guess, at the first instance? That's a very good question. Um, naturally, people are always anxious when they come to hospital. I think we all are. I, I would be anxious if I was a, a patient. Um, and I think the best thing to do is be open, be honest, communicate well and communicate in a clear way. Doctors tend to use acronyms, as we've talked about before, lots of long letters, lots of long words and jargon. You actually have to talk in straightforward terms that people understand is it okay if if you are talking to a doctor and they say something that you don't understand to say actually i I don't i don't know what you mean can you explain that in a in a better way for me i would always encourage people to do that and generally when people come and see me and if they go away with a diagnosis that's quite serious i will usually say go away get yourself a pad and pen put it in the kitchen or by the phone write down questions both yourself and your family, things you want explained, and ask the questions again and again until you're satisfied with the answer that you get. Because it's most important that whoever's receiving any medical news understands that news. How do you handle it personally when you're with a patient and you can see that there is something potentially very seriously wrong with them? It's it's difficult for myself because um, we will often see patients in a snapshot in time. So they will come in to me, say, for an ultrasound scan, and I won't know their background. All I will know is a little bit of information that's been written by one of the, the doctors, either GP or one of the hospital doctors. So I won't know whether they have any family support or what whether they've been recently bereaved or some other tragedy has happened. So if people ask me a direct question, I will give them a reasonably direct answer, but I will also say that there are other possibilities because you cannot make a diagnosis 
just based on one tiny piece of information. You have to have the whole picture. And it would be very rash for anybody to say, you have X, Y or Z without knowing that whole picture. In terms of, of what you actually see then as a radiologist, I mean, what does the image that you're you're getting actually look like? It depends on what we're looking at. If I'm looking at a plain film, we've all seen x-rays, and they, they're just black and white pictures, almost like negative pictures. If you're looking at ultrasound, it's like a fuzzy image. It looks like a very bad TV image, but you get used to looking at it and interpreting it. CT scans, which are... Um, the, the big magnetic scans, well, not magnetic, the X-ray scans that we use, um, give you a sort of cross-section, so little tiny slices of somebody which you can look at in any plane. They give you a lot more detail, but a, a typical CT scan may give us about uh, 800 to 1,000 images to look at, and we will look at those on different settings. So we will look at specifically at the bones, at the lungs, at the soft tissues. So those 800 images you will look at in five or six different ways. So there's a lot of information on, on a CT scan. If you look at an MR scan, even more information. If I do breast MR, one of our scans, and we do several on each individual patient, one of the scans will produce about 900 images. So there's a lots of information, lots of pictures, and it's something that takes a, a long time to assimilate. I know that um, when I've had my three children, the first in 2007, the last in 2012, the, the development that I saw in the ultrasound scan were phenomenal. Mm. The, the, the detail that was available in the lace scans... I'm wondering about the, the developments that have been made in your area in terms of technology in recent years. Well, as I've touched on, the, the, the breast MR has transformed things. Um, particularly in younger women, we were able to see um, breast disease that we couldn't see before on x-rays or ultrasound. And that um, makes a big difference to the people, particularly if they've got a strong family history of breast cancer. We can pick things up earlier and hopefully make a big difference to their life and their whole future. One of the latest things that we're looking at now is the 3D breast scanning, which is the digital breast tomosynthesis. And basically it's a type of x-ray, but it's um, made up of slices through the breast that are put together so that you can look at the breast in three different dimensions and, and you'll pick up up to 40% more cancers by using that technique. How close are we to getting that over here? Well, um, I have to say that the Manx Breast Cancer Support Group have been fantastic at supporting us. I'm optimistic that over the next year we should we should get that in. I would hope it would be sooner than that, but we'll see how we go. The public have been so generous with the unit. We, You know, I think... We're just grateful for all the support that we've had. Well, you recently developed the, the breast MRI service with the support of the Manx Breast Cancer Support Group. Um, and you were actually on this programme a few weeks ago talking about the difference that the dedicated unit's going to make for the Manx Breast Cancer sufferers. How does it feel being such a critical part of that development? I think you're part of a team. So I think we all feel that the development is fantastic and it's a credit to uh, Miss Bellow and her vision for a, a single unit it will transform the patient's lives or, and, and also the lives of the women who just come for breast screening because it will all be on one dedicated site. It's, it, uh, it's designed not to look like or feel like a hospital so that people don't feel like they're going into a hospital setting, which can be quite um, uncomfortable for some people. So it'll, it'll make a huge difference. Let's just talk about screening, because when we did that special programme with the Manx Breast Cancer Support Group a few weeks ago, I was really, really surprised at the relatively low take-up for the routine breast screening. I think it was, what, something like 70-odd percent. Why is it so low? Well, I think it's low for a number of reasons. Uh, interestingly, today, I've just found out one of the... the main reasons why it's low is that the per people who are invited for screening their first round when they turn 50 aren't coming. They're the group that we need to target. For some reason um, people when they come, when they're, they're first invited for breast screening when they turn 50. But I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think possibly they're too busy. 
they're probably working, they've probably got teenage um, children, and also I think a number of people are actually scared to come for screening because they don't want to find out if something's wrong. But how do you counter that? Because I, I can understand that fear of thinking, oh, I don't want to know, I'd rather not know if there was something going on, but I mean, how can you reassure people that actually it's better to come, find it, please God, early and do something about it. Well, I think that's exactly the point. We, we need to encourage people that nine times out of ten, if we, if we call you back, it's not going to be anything serious or sinister. But if we do find something, it's better to find it early because you're more likely to get um, a, a much better outcome. And if we find things early, we can treat them more appropriately. It is really worrying whenever you referred to something like the breast clinic. And I had um, personal experience of that a couple of years ago. But you know what I found really reassuring was that the vast majority of it is done in one day so you haven't got weeks and weeks and weeks generally hopefully of, of waiting for results it's it's done there and then if you can get that reassurance that you need hopefully absolutely um that that's that's the whole aim and the great thing about the new unit is everything will be done on site whereas previously you were having to walk down to main x-ray and all over the place um and i think it'd be a far better patient journey Rebecca, we're talking about screening and kind of i suppose taking your own health into your own hands I'm just wondering, really, do you practice what you preach? Yes, I do. I think it would be a bit hypocritical not to. Yes, I did have the letter drop on my mat when I turned 50, and yes, I did go for screening. I'm also interested in something that you said um, about the fact that there's a niche for all personalities and interests within the many radiological subspecialities. I wondered what you mean by that. Um, well, different, different people... Uh, Doctors are just like everybody else. They're different personalities, and um, some people are people people. Some people prefer to be in the, in the you know quiet somewhere else, and don't really get on well with people. So you know you get people who um, love to just report scans. They'll sit in a back room. They won't ever interact with um, patients, but they will churn through the work, and they'll be very good at what they do. You'll get other people who actually enjoy talking to people, and so, such as the breast work is great because I get to meet people, I get to talk to them, I get to tell them about diagnosis, um, and also I get to do some practical things I get to do biopsies and things like that so there's a vast spectrum of things that you can do as a radiologist which is why it's such a great specialty to be in. Well Dr Rebecca Miller thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us this afternoon. I know you have to rush back now to go to patients but we really appreciate you uh, being here and explaining uh, some of those uh, differences between radiology and uh, I've completely forgotten what Radiography. That's the other one. The yeah. other one. You see, it was going so well, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. This is a really interesting one. The husband of a heroic police officer who died saving hundreds of people on 9-11 has returned his wife's Women of the Year Award. Why? Well, because earlier this month, the same award ceremony honoured transgender celebrity Caitlyn Jenner. In an open letter to Glamour magazine, which posthumously awarded his wife the title, James Smith, who's also an NYPD officer, said he found it insulting to the memory of his wife that Caitlin had been given the award, calling it a slap in the face. Caitlin, formerly Bruce Jenner, was given the Transgender Champion Award in New York in uh, November, and James Smith's open letter read as follows. On October the 29th, 2001, I was honoured to accept the Glamour magazine Woman of the Year Award posthumously given to my wife, police officer Moira Smith. Moira was killed on September the 11th, 2001, while rescuing thousands from the World Trade Centre. I was shocked and saddened to learn that Glamour has just named Bruce Jenner Woman of the Year. I find it insulting to Maura Smith's memory and the memory of other heroic women who have earned this award. Was there no woman in America or the rest of the world more deserving than this man? At a time when we have women in the armed forces fighting and dying for our country, heroic doctors fighting deadly diseases, women police officers and firefighters putting their lives on the line for total strangers, brave women overcoming life-threatening diseases, the list of possibilities goes on. 
Is this the best you could do? I can only guess that this was a publicity stunt meant to resuscitate a dying medium. After discussing this slap in the face to the memory of our hero with my family, I have decided to return more as a ward to Glamour magazine. Sincerely, James J. Smith. Some of James Smith's open letter. Well, a Glamour magazine spokesperson has told the New York Daily Post they stood by the decision, saying, We were proud to honour his wife in 2001, and we stand by our decision to honour Caitlyn Jenner. Glamour's Women of the Year Awards recognise women with a variety of backgrounds and experiences. But we want to know what you think about this. Was James Smith right in returning his wife's award in protest? Should Caitlyn Jenner have been honoured in the Women of the Year Awards in the first place? Let us know what you think. Women today at magsradio.com, or you can text 166167. And you can go to the Women Today Facebook page. Uh, the debate's been going on there uh, for a couple of hours so far this morning. Uh, Joe, what are your sort of gut reactionary thoughts to this? Um, I just actually would be a bit more offended by seeing that Victoria Beckham had been awarded more than Caitlyn Jenner um, because I totally understand why they actually would award Caitlyn Jenner for what he's she's been through um, because it takes somebody with... Oh, an awful lot of guts to do that. And he's had a, she has she, had an she. awful lot of backlash from the press and obviously people around. Um, yes, I will sympathise with him. I can understand why, because you cannot put the two people in the same box. But this is not an awards by, you know, it's a Glamour magazine awards. It, it's supposed to be not so heavy going. It's supposed to be quite light as well. And I think, you know, I think they were right to do what they did. I've been thinking about this. Can I see uh, his point no, do you know, I don't think I can. I think this it doesn't in any way take away from his wife. But as you said, Joe, this is a celebrity magazine. And, and I don't think you can put a caveat on the issue of bravery because so many people fight battles every day, don't they? And Caitlyn Jenner has been a huge inspiration to many people. Absolutely. I don't think you're comparing like with like or apples with apples there. And I'm just a bit unsure of exactly what he's he's protesting against because my only thought is that he is protesting against people being transgender. And if that is his is the case and that is what he's protesting against, I think that shows even more why it's necessary to have a transgender champion i think it shows that we need to kind of look at the issue and talk about the issue properly and i actually think the way he wrote his letter and referring to caitlin with her male name that she no longer uses was incredibly incredibly disrespectful and i show i think it shows even further the misunderstanding that still exists and the need for awards like this and why you know you just can't put everybody in the same box can you you do need to award people for different things and recognize them for that you know what are we awarding victoria beckham for um producing great fashion line that sells well you know compared to something that caitlin jenner's done it's just that you but just can't I think, compare i think again yeah again victoria beckham is hugely inspirational to a lot of people she's um an incredible businesswoman and again you're not comparing like with like are you so you you can't say we're not. We're going to award one type of bravery and not award another. I think if you're going to strength. protest, you may protest against that more. So I think part of the problem, though, is that isn't hasn't this come into the spotlight at a really, really unfortunate time, given what we were just talking about the events over the weekend, which and this award ceremony actually happened um, on the 9th of November, so much earlier this month. Okay, some interesting uh, thoughts on this one, Kate. Yeah, we were just asking, was he right to return the award in protest? And Jill, Margaret, and Joy say simply. 
absolutely yes he was carol adds to that yes i agree with him it makes the award a mockery but becky cruel says not at all disgusting behavior and reeks of transphobia he even dead names caitlin in his letter caitlin is just as much a woman as his late wife it's important to recognize trans people bravery comes in many different forms and with a murder rate of transgender people higher than ever before just living your authentic life for some people can be deadly and heather says it's an award from glamour magazine not a nobel prize if james smith is unhappy and returning the award makes him feel better then that's his decision however i guess he and his family were proud that his wife had been honored by the magazine originally and gained some pleasure from it until now yeah we've had one from patricia neen saying since glamour magazine gives out a variety of awards it seems perfectly acceptable to give an award in transgender category not an easy life for those living it especially with like this man putting their two penny worth in and she also goes on to say this is glamour magazine we're talking about if this gentleman feels so strongly why didn't he return the award after victoria beckham received hers for service to the community hmm? there are many amazing women out there but someone has to first of all recognize and then nominate them and is glamour magazine necessarily the recognition we are seeking Joe? alex says heroism can take many forms as does bravery i think caitlin's courage takes a different form than his man's wife but it's just a worthy recognition it's just worthy of recognition i can't imagine being in either situation and consequently being as strong as either of these women who are we to say as a real hero surely we all look up to different people and i'm sure to plenty of people caitlin is incredibly heroic and uh, we've had one from jim who says i could care less that bruce jenner thinks he has somehow transformed into a woman he was born a man and will die as a male i won't say he will die a man because he gave that right up with this garbage i totally understand the reasoning behind the returning of the award unfortunately i don't think they will care since it gains them some much needed publicity and for those that decry our thoughts and feelings on the matter i don't care what you think either i am as entitled to my opinions as you are i think that's a, a really important point um about being as entitled to your opinion and i would um whilst i completely disagree with that comment i think you are completely right in pointing out that you are as entitled to your opinion and i think in light of everything that we spoke about at the beginning of the program and everything that's gone on this weekend it's a really important time to think about the fact that we are entitled to our opinions and how important it is that we uh, that we cling on to that right. As we heard in the news, Timwald held a moment of silence this morning to mark their respect for those who lost their lives in terrorist attacks on Friday. And since the attacks in Paris, there has been a wave of people changing their Facebook profile pictures to include a filter of the French flag. Now, you probably don't have to look far down your timeline to see someone sporting the tricolore, and Facebook have actually added an app so you can do it in the click of a button and, in their words, support the cause. Now, my profile picture is simply the French flag with nothing behind it, and Kate hasn't changed hers at all. And actually, yesterday, we discussed whether or not we should have changed the Women Today profile picture as well. So we wanted to know what you thought about this. Have you changed your profile picture? If so, why? If you haven't, why not? Let us know what you think. Women Today at MagsRadio.com, or you can text 166-177, or head over to the Women Today Facebook page on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday. Kate, why didn't you change yours? Um... Honestly, it's something I thought about and I very, very nearly did change my profile picture. But to be honest, I felt and feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. It's not in any way that I don't think that what happened this weekend was atrocious and disgusting. Of course, of course I do. But I don't think that changing my profile picture is necessary. My friends, and I am only friends with with my real life friends on Facebook, know how I feel. And I also think there's an undercurrent of 
of having to do it. And I don't think that's right or, or fair. I can see what you're saying about the idea of, of feeling that you should do it. But I personally feel that in the case of an extreme world event, to use social media as a means of showing that you're aware and that you care about what happened is surely what social media is all about. But again, I am only friends with my friends and people who know me and they know that I care and I am engaged and I don't think I have to use something so horrific to prove that I am engaged with what's going on in the world. But it's not just friends who see your profile picture, is it? And to see people come together in a show of unity against terrorism, I think that's a, a really powerful message. And, and if you take that argument then, Kate, well, why be on Facebook or social media at all? As you say, your, your friends know you, they know what you stand for, they know what you've been doing, they know where you've been. But for me, Facebook is about keeping up to date with my friends and what they're up to in their lives, not necessarily to engage with them on um, a, a political level or to talk about those kind of extreme topics of conversation. It's for me to know, oh, do you know what, my friend has just been on holiday or I, I stand that's what I see social media as for, for me personally. And I think this whole thing comes down to a personal choice. I don't think it's wrong that you changed your picture. I don't think it's wrong that anyone has, has, has done whatever they want. It's about how you feel about it and what you feel comfortable doing. I think many people have, have made the argument um, about the fact that this hasn't been done for other atrocities or incomprehensible acts of violence um, and why Facebook has decided to support this cause but not the others. And I would say, in argument to that, that to do it for every world atrocity, I think, would have taken the power away from this. And I think the reality is, for us here, France is very close. Paris is a city that many of us know well. So this is an act of terrorism which has hit terribly close to home and it's made such an impact on the world media because, thankfully touch wood it is so rare and it is horrendous to think about people living with this violence and mindless murder on a daily basis and the fact that that we're raising this issue and thinking about that is as having a realization about how lucky we are to live the way we do and don't don't get me wrong i'm not saying in any way that i don't think it's it's worthwhile marking it or you know i paused yesterday for a minute of silence i think all those things are incredibly important but I actually find it more uncomfortable that Facebook, which is a huge, huge international conglomerate, pick and choose which cause we could support in this means through this app. And I think it's a, it's it's personal and it shouldn't be dictated to by a company. But it's a social media development, isn't it? Obviously, somebody's had this idea and perhaps in future this will be available for other things that happen. I suppose they have done it before. They did it when um, uh, gay marriage was approved in the US. And I didn't, again, put a rainbow filter over my profile picture. I didn't feel that that was necessary for me because I know where I stand on it and I know how I feel about it and so do people that I'm friends with. Do you know, the, there aren't many times that I have changed my profile picture to support a particular cause or... or person really the only times I've done it before um, have been for personal reasons um, and to support friends and, and in both cases actually it was friends whose babies had been born they were critically ill and one of them sadly died and we as a group of their friends changed our profile picture to show that we were thinking about them and the mothers in both cases said that they found that really comforting and I think if that's the message that hopefully this gives out to people who've been touched by the violence that happened on Friday I think it's a worthwhile thing keep your thoughts coming in on this women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away. Just before the break, you heard Kate and I discuss our thoughts on the fact that Facebook have offered you this app. You can change your profile picture temporarily uh, to show the uh, French flag in honour of the atrocities that happened at the weekend. We're joined in the studio this afternoon by Dr Rebecca Miller, who's a consultant radiologist at Nobles Hospital. Before we talk more about your job, Rebecca, you're not on Facebook, but interesting, you said if you were, you wouldn't have changed your profile picture. Why? 
No, because I think um, I think the atrocities uh, uh, speak for themselves, and I don't. I wouldn't feel I'd, a need to uh, express my horror at that by putting something on Facebook. I feel I feel very similar to Kate. I don't think I'd need to actually express that. My people around me know exactly how I feel about what happened in Paris. Interesting, though. Would you wear a poppy? Yes. So I would see that as a as a public demonstration of how you feel about something and wanting to remember something. So I kind of wonder why it's different in that case. Absolutely, I agree with you. It's a it's a public representation of how you feel about something, but it's a choosing for yourself which one you want to support and what you want to support and what you want to publicly put out there and that's an individual choice and should be an individual choice Hey, uh, some more of your thoughts about uh, the Facebook profile picture Yeah, a lot of people have been commenting on our Facebook page and Sarah says because I have friends in France, when we asked her why you changed it, she says because I have friends in France and have visited Paris a number of times and know how easy this has happened and wanted to do something, however small to tell the terrorists they will not win and to support the nation that has lost so many of their people to this horrible crime and Amy added I'm with Sarah on this my sister and her family live in France and we have visited Paris a number of times where my husband's brother lived for many years the atrocities that happened are beyond just showing solidarity for those who died in Paris Lisa says I did change it but then changed it to one of world peace to show my support to all who have or are suffering um, when Dr Rebecca Miller was here I asked her whether or not she would have changed her profile picture had she been on Facebook she said she wouldn't but she um i then asked you know would you wear um a poppy for example it's the first example that, that uh, sort of came to my mind but i was also thinking about charity badges and things like that as a public show of support for a particular cause because uh, somebody's texted in saying going back to you saying what's the difference between wearing a poppy and changing your facebook picture you don't get likes for wearing a poppy i think it's just for me though all about uh, showing that you do identify with something that you are sort of nailing your colors to the mast almost yeah, I, I, again, I, com- I completely, completely get that. But for me, Facebook and my profile picture is not the way that I choose to talk about how I feel about massive international politics or worldwide atrocities. I, I just, I just feel that that is not the place for my Facebook. But it's, it's, it's completely personal. Alex Brindley, what mm. did you decide to do? I put the flag on uh, the uh, my Facebook page. I did the one that, um, in Kate's words, five minutes ago, although she says, you know, she's more than happy with us doing it, she said it was silly. Um, I, I don't feel that's a problem. I, I feel that social media, in, in its most basic form, is a digital version of being sociable with people. And let's face it, that's how people do it. You, you mentioned it's how you keep in touch with friends, and, you know, um, the majority of the time I get to see, um, you know, uh, Beth, I don't know when you've been decorating at home. Kate, I get lots of photos about when you're, you know, dressed up to go out to a party. This kind of thing appears on on Facebook because this is the stuff that people like to put out there and communicate with people. I don't see a problem in um, basically stating and even feeling like I want to join in um, in solidarity. Solidarity is another word for bandwagon. Just bandwagon is the more gimmicky phrase that's used normally in politics. I don't feel the problem in saying that actually, yeah, I, I do feel this because I've been touched by this. I think it's you know, wrong. And uh, you did mention that, yes, there are a lot of other atrocities that don't get the same amount of attention. Um, well, I think this is the same thing I debate when it came to giving minutes silence to lots of different things, you know. Um, it's what people consider touches them more. And and in the case of, you know, um, Paris, this has touched a lot of people in the United Kingdom and the British Isles. But do you feel then that I don't stand in solidarity with it or that I don't have the same respect because I didn't change my profile picture? Um... 
I I would say, not from you not changing your profile picture, having spoken to you about your reasons, um, if I'm completely honest, it seems that you're more worried about um, your, your, your personal feeling towards it. It's almost akin... I, I get this with a lot of people who are very... Um, uh, I, I feel I'm, anarchist isn't the word because that's a bit too anti-establishment, but um, this whole idea that I, I shouldn't be made to do this and I shouldn't be made to do that, whereas the people who are doing this um, on the other side of it, I don't want um, you know someone to tell me that um, it's silly and it's wrong because, quite frankly, um, your view of telling me that mine is silly and wrong is equally as offensive. Mm, and to I, me. I didn't ever say that it was wrong. No, no, no. But, but okay, but, yeah. but the, the, in someone in that position, have, yeah. yeah, in that position, saying you know that um, I, I don't want to be made to do that is equally offensive to me as it seems to your side of the argument. Mm. It's just because Kate is a rebel, right? She, is. she does not want to do what everybody else has <laughs> seen to be doing. That's it. You just want to be on the outside there, just a little bit cool. I know. My default position is always to go. Oh well, God, everyone's doing that. I'm not going to do then yeah definitely there probably um, is a bit of that just a couple more thoughts then uh, from facebook yeah alex said i think it could be e- easy to overthink this i changed my profile picture because it's a small mark of respect and i don't think there's much more to it i don't want to write a long status about it she says but i'm deeply saddened about what happened and so i changed my picture to reflect that it's interesting that um you've just been talking about how on facebook you know do you show your political leanings to you know um the, to your support for this cause um your show has been made up heavily and always is of people exercising their thoughts on topics which you do yourself kate um if you comment on stuff you comment with your opinion on facebook to show what you stand for do you know what though i i think maybe it comes down to this as well i don't put statuses on facebook i i i really don't do very much on Facebook at all apart from be tagged in other people's photos it's unusual for me to even put up my own photos she's an it girl that's all it is you see uh, let's, just, <laughs> let's just finish up with Annabelle's comment I struggled with this as didn't want to look like I jumped on the bandwagon when I knew there were other major wars and terrorist attacks around the world and also not to look like a Facebook sheep but then I had the thought about how much Facebook is used worldwide and I thought I would cha- change it to show solidarity and the world standing united against terrorism today I changed it back uh, that debate will continue on the Women Today Facebook page so you can go there uh, like the page and comment there after the show now I don't know about you but I really think that there are some people who when you think about them you immediately associate them with a certain place and for me our studio <laughs> guest this afternoon is absolutely intrinsic to Peel uh, Pam Quine you grew up there you taught there you've now retired there and uh, most days you can be seen walking down Michael Street usually on a mission I think it's fair to say yes. and um, I bet Pam you know everything that goes on in Peel don't you? Not everything, but uh, quite a lot, yes. We do try to keep up to date. (laughs) It is a place that has changed dramatically in recent years, isn't it? But how do you feel about Peel now? I mean, does it still have that same same essence that it was always famed for? Well, not really, because with the new estates, it's getting to be them and us. You know, they don't always integrate into what's going on in Peel. It's understandable in a way because a lot of these people now work in Douglas or out of Douglas. Naturally enough, they do their shopping in Douglas or their interest in what's going on. They do love Peel and they will come in occasionally, but the old Peel has gone, I'm afraid, as... I knew it, but then, as I'm always told, you've got to move on, and I suppose we have, as long as it's not too drastic a change. 
Well, I still love Peel. <laughs> well, you clearly do. Uh, Take yeah. us back then to Old Peel. Now, when you grew up, you lived in Peveril Terrace. Yes. And you had first-hand experience of internment during the Second World War. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Well, we lived in number three, and that was overlooking the um, tennis courts and the bowling green. You can't miss it now because it's, I think it's a purpley maroon colour, that house. And, um, oh, it was lovely there. First six years were fine. I lived with my father, who's a teacher, my mother, who was a nurse. Three of her sisters were as well, and an aunt and grandparents. So it was a good family, but I was the only one. But I wasn't spoiled. Those were the days when children were seen and not heard. But we lived there for six years, and I can just remember two things in particular. And one is my mother taking me out in the yard one day and lifting me up and pointing up to the sky. And there was a big airship went over. A big, oh, it was a horrible big thing. Big, and I, I remember crying, and she had to take me in the house. So it must, must have been going over Peel at that time. The second was, <laughs> oh dear, I tripped over a lawnmower and it dislocated my arm. And in those days, my mother knew the doctor well. He was an old-fashioned doctor. He came up. And I was, <laughs> can remember him saying, just hold her tightly round the waist. And he took my lower arm. I can remember as if it was yesterday. And my upper arm. And he twisted and turned it, pulled it, and put it back into socket again. I've never had any trouble with it since, except when I broke it a couple of years ago. <laughs> but she... Had to, it was in a sling then, but I remember crying and she was rocking me in a rocking chair and those days she had to be careful that they didn't rock too far backwards. <laughs> but it was an affectionate upbringing then, Pam. Oh, lovely, yes. And we were allowed to be children, you know, and I started school from there, went to the Philip Christian Centre and I can remember the teachers in there and Miss Mulkton and uh, Miss Gorn, Cathy Mulkton, Winnie Gorn and Miss Pollitt. And the rocking horse is now in the Lease Museum. So there's a bit of age on that rocking horse in there, I can tell you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that was the start. But during that time, I remember coming home and the adults looking so worried and all. And they said, oh, we're going to have to move house. Well, to a five and six-year-old, that doesn't mean very much. But as I grew older, they'd had six weeks' notice from the government. You've got to go. You've got to get out of that house. Well, where do we go? Well, you've got to look for somewhere. So they had to look for somewhere that was big enough to take everybody, even my grandfather. And it was a struggle. But eventually we did manage to rent Albany House, in Albany Road, that's the first one. It's a very nice lady and gentleman got that place now. And uh, I was there all during the war years. But the only memory I have got is going down with my mother to the top of Stanley Road and looking up towards where the barbed wire was. And there were two men and they were just their arms were on the hands on the barbed wire and they were looking down just looking around because half of them it was only because they were Italian or because they were German nationalities and that was all I ever had dealings with I mean I was too young at the time to 
to appreciate that. And then from there, from the Philip Christian Centre, it was up to the cloth workers. <laughs> and then you went um, to Park Road and you used to have to get the train to school, Pam. Uh, yes, we had to get the train and go down from where I was living then down to the railway station. Boys at one end, girls the other. Never the twain should meet. We got to Douglas and we had to walk up to Park Road. Well, that's a good way over Apple Street, Mount Havelock and up that. And if it was pouring rain or windy, well, you had to sit in wet clothes. And then when we <laughs> coming back at night, it was exactly the same thing. And eventually they did have a bus to meet us at the station who would take us right back up to the schools. And then after two or three years, they took the train off and we had a bus to take us into school. So that was very interesting at Park Road. <laughs> well, school mustn't have been so bad because you, you decided to go into teaching. We'll talk a bit more about that later. I mean, yeah. your father had, had been a teacher. Was there ever still a, was. any sense or did you ever think that, oh, you might try something else? I mean, you mentioned your mother being a nurse. Well, not really. I always wanted to be. It was either nursing or teaching, you know, and... I heard so much about these nurses and things in those days. One of them, one of the nurses, the aunts, nursed the Gibbs. And that's how Miss Janet came to be my godmother. And they were the ones that the had grove. the grove. Yeah. But I didn't fancy doing it then, you know. So I thought, no, I'd rather go in for teaching. And I'd rather teach younger children. Because my father, he was a very clever man. He taught either double in physics and chemistry. And he he talked to the cloth workers for a while because he couldn't get the job he wanted. And I thought, oh, no, if I've got to go in his class. <laughs> I dreaded having to go into his class. But fortunately, he moved to St. Lillian's. He got the job at St. Lillian's and he was certainly retired. So I was, you know, it wasn't quite so bad. But I always wanted to go in for teaching, yes. But I'm surprised I ever got there. Well, we'll talk a bit more about yes. that later. But um, <laughs> you met your husband, Jeff, and you've been married 52 years now. Yes. You met him playing badminton? Yes, at St John's. <laughs> Love at first sight? Was it? I should say Jeff is sitting uh, on the uh, sofa, well away from the action here, Jeff. Yes, we got uh, uh, I don't know it was love at first. I, I don't know. We just sort of gelled and that was it, really. And we've been doing that ever since. <laughs> well, you've got uh, two daughters. You've yes. got a grandson as well. And, I mean, we talk about Peel and, and how much you love it. And you are I a do. key member of the, the Peel Heritage Trust. Yeah. Um, how important would you say, Pam, organisations like that are in in keeping the, the, the sense of Peel alive? Very important. I think it's nice for any of our new residents and quite a few have come to meetings they are able to come and we've always had such I've never had a problem when I was a secretary getting marvellous speakers to come you know to come and talk Peter Kelly and just to name one or two you know and they've always been so good you know to come and so interesting to listen to and also entertainers we've had Howard Howard Kane, and all his family. Oh, mm. we've had Howard, yes, and the family. And people have always seemed to enjoy it. It's still going today. I'm not on the committee now because I retired three years ago. The time comes when you've got to say enough's enough, you know. Uh, but 
I think it's nice and most people are interested and we usually get them to come to our meetings. This is Women's Day on Manx Radio, 27 minutes past two. Now, just before the break, we heard from NCT's Elizabeth Duff, who was speaking about their new campaign, Beyond Baby Blues. It's encouraging people to talk more openly about maternal mental health and to really encourage people to seek the help they need. We want to hear your thoughts on this. Just how easy is it for us to talk about this issue? What is stopping us from raising it with new mums? Text one double six one double seven, or you can email women today at manxradio.com. Um, Kate, obviously, as we all say when we're talking about things like this, you obviously don't have your own children, but I wonder how you feel about the fact that we're, we're talking about something that could potentially, if you decided to have a baby, could potentially be a problem. I think it would be easy to be absolutely terrified by it and to be put off even more the idea of having children when you I think as soon as you start the topic of of having children or raising children it's just like opening a can of worms there seems to be issue 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 but I think it is actually reassuring that these kind of campaigns exist and that we are talking about these issues Mm. so that you know potentially as I get to a stage where I might think about having children, hopefully even more of the stigma will have been taken away from it. And it will be even easier to talk about these kind of things than perhaps it is now. I think from a personal experience, um, I know it was a massive shock, and I have said it on this show before, it was a massive shock for me when I first had um, my um, son. And I kind of, I did expect that, you know, the the romantic notion of that mm. instant bonding and it was going to be fantastic. And when I didn't feel that, I completely felt like I'd failed that I'd Mm. let him down and it took you know I was really lucky and had a fantastic health visitor who was really really understanding and just said you know in some ways having a baby is like having a stranger move into your house Mm. you have to get to know them and that that bond and that love has to grow and that really made it a lot easier for me but I still think we have this unrealistic expectation and I've got a friend who had a baby um, about 12 weeks ago and she texted me after nine weeks saying I don't think my baby likes me I just feel really awful Mm. and I just think we are just that pressure to to be a perfect mother straight Mm. away is really really harmful Mm. how easy did you find it to to start talking to your health visitor you say she was amazing but how easy was it to even start that conversation yeah probably not very actually it was probably yeah I yeah I, I think I went through the stage where I'd go out with him and sort of look around at everybody and think imagine everyone was watching me going oh look what a great mother she is look she's doing all the right things and I think yeah it it was a a hard conversation to start having because that's the bit that I Elizabeth is how do you start that conversation as a concerned friend um I don't have that many friends at the moment who've had children but I do have a few and I was thinking if I was worried about one of them how would I start that conversation without because I would be so conscious of not wanting them to, to feel like they'd failed and ha- feel those emotions. I wouldn't want them to become instantly defensive. And I also really, really wouldn't want to, no matter how worried I was, broach a topic that I thought might trigger even more worry or concern or spark that kind of worry and concern as well. So I just don't know how I'd start it. I think you're absolutely right because there is that sort of sense that if you said anything that maybe you know you're you're suggesting that they're not doing well enough it's really it's really mm. difficult pam quine you have got um two daughters you yes. had them a little while ago um what how was the the notion of i don't know the the baby blues as as it's being referred to here how was that dealt with when you had your children well with the first girl i think it's all so new and so different that you have to get 
adjusted to oh, am I doing the right thing? And uh, you know, as far as feeding's concerned, and it, it's just so different from anything else you've ever dealt with before. And I think a lot of people can feel, oh, I don't think I'm doing this right or whatever, you know. But um, I think, and then with the second, it's completely different. Well, you know, you know what you're doing and you know how to change your nappy <laughs> and things like that. But I can understand how people can get, you know, depressed and oh gosh, am I going to have to put up with this crying at night and all this sort of thing. We were fortunate in a way, weren't we? They weren't too bad. <laughs> Only when they were cutting teeth. <laughs> and how um, how good was Jeff, I mean, at changing nappies and things like that? It's a different generation, isn't it? Was he, uh, you know, what a hands-on father, would you say? Pam? Oh, he was a hands-on father when he was there, but he was out at work all day, you see. And then, of course, I'd given up by this time. And uh, I was off about eight or nine years. And I didn't go back then until uh, they were both at school. But... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yes, Jeff was wonderful with the girls, you know. Well, we've got uh, some comments in. Broaching the topic with my partner was the hardest part for me. I felt like I'd failed him, but once I did speak openly with him, it was so much easier to talk mm. to others. I felt like I had a team member with me, someone who wouldn't give up. Uh, we've had another text saying, I had postnatal depression and my biggest fear was telling anyone I felt lonely and sad. As I had a lovely baby house, mm. I thought the symptoms would go and I hid yes. them until the baby was a year old, at which point when it came out, I was in a very bad state. Oh. I would get help sooner if it happened with another pregnancy. And uh, another text in from a father who says it's a very scary situation for the father too. I'm afraid to say I hadn't a clue and was nothing like as sympathetic as I probably should have been at times. My wife turned angry, clingy and occasionally violent towards me. She was just prescribed antidepressants by the doctor and sent off. Luckily she didn't take the tablets as the feeling frightened her. Fortunately she did manage to pull herself around without much help from me it has to be said but it was a very worrying time. You might remember um, a while ago I went to a daddy baby care session which is a, a session for new fathers or fathers-to-be on the island at um, Nobles Hospital. And I was really impressed to see there that when they're talking to new fathers, they talk about the symptoms of postnatal depression and what they should be looking for in their, their partners or wives or the mother of their child. And I thought that was fantastic. But they also said, which I, I think was really important too, that sometimes a dad can feel down and isolated and it is important that that man goes and gets help as well and I think that's maybe something we need to talk about more as well. Keep your thoughts coming in women today at manxradio.com or you can text uh, 166-177 and something else about mental health uh, which caught our attention this week is Ken Livingston who suggested a shadow defence minister who criticised him needed psychiatric help and Kevin Jones who has suffered with depression said those comments were gravely offensive. Mm. Now Mr Livingston initially refused to apologise despite being a to do so by the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn but he then tweeted I reserved, unreservedly apologise to Kevin Jones for my comments they should not have been made at all let alone in this context I also make this apology because Jeremy is right to insist on a more civil politics and as a party we should take this seriously so we've just been talking about uh, maternal mental health um, Kate what did you think of Ken Livingstone's uh, comments was he uh, right to apologise eventually for them? I think he was right to eventually uh, apologise but I think the problem is that he apologised uh, for basically people 
being offended rather than for what he'd said. I watched his um, his appearance on Newsnight and I felt like it wasn't the most sincere of apologies I've ever seen. But I don't think we should get caught up in what one man says or what one man does. I think we need to look more about why are we why are we using phrases like that? Why are we kind of flippantly ref- saying someone needs psychiatric mm. help instead of thinking more in depth about why we seem to still think it's okay to use words like mad or mental or psycho Mm. there are a lot of things that um, go into it I think there is still that stigma associated and we've talked again we know we've talked about how you you deal with that when it's something that does affect so many people I think it's it's about understanding and understanding you know we were talking about maternal mental health and about the fact that that can happen to absolutely anyone and I think if we start to understand more about mental health problems and and things people go through and the fact that it can be anyone from any background with any situations they're dealing with that I think that level of understanding can only help us to kind of watch what we're saying and think about our words before we use them. A few more comments, Kate. Yeah, we've had a message on Facebook to say, I went to a mental health clinic to help me to cope with the loss of a loved one. Every job I have to declare that I've been to a mental health clinic, I actually wanted someone to talk to and listen to and help me with the mm-hmm. grieving process. We also had a text in from uh, a mother who says, we adopted three children and I had post-adoption depression, which I'd never heard of. I imagine that women who gave birth instantly love their babies, even if they did suffer postnatal depression in an awful way. It's comforting to know that we are all the same. Hello, I'm Mrs Burton. I'm the head teacher at Williston School. Hi, my name is Bo Brown. I'm in year five. Hi, my name is Daniel Kinraid and I'm in year five. Hello, I'm <laughs> Sophia Rango and I'm in year five. Hi, I'm Molly Bees and I'm in Year 6. Hi, I'm Faith Kelly and I'm in Year 6. Hello, my name is Katie Kisak and I'm in Year 6. Today is Williston's 60th birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. The school started, opened in 1955. Now, it was actually officially opened on the 17th of November, but since going in our underground and unearthing all of the um, archives down there, I've actually found out the official opening was on the 17th of November, but the first pupils actually came to the school in January of 1955. And what have you got here, a logbook? I have got a logbook from the very first day the school was opened and here we have it was Williston Primary Infant School opened today and the headmistress was a Miss E.H. Oates and there were two teachers Miss D. Devereux and Miss E. Cartwright and its logbooks go on all throughout the 60 years there's logbooks throughout the whole of the 60 years not always complete but there's many of them two children on 5th of january two children were admitted today making number on roll 50 number on roll today is 190 so we've come on quite a long way since then so the idea of today is to have an open afternoon. You're hoping as many, yeah. I guess, past pupils, mm-hmm. anybody who's had an association with the school comes yeah. along. What are they going to see here? OK, when they arrive, we've got it um, planned 
to military precision. We have tour guides. Our children will have um, a flag and they will have 10 people in their group and they will take guests through the decades because each class has been learning about a decade. So we've gone from the 50s right up to what we call the Nowies and that's our reception. They've been doing the Nowies. So the guides will take our guests through all of the decades where they'll go into the classrooms and see what the children have been learning and then the event will culminate in a lovely tea party in our hall. And I'm wondering whether you've got any parents who used to be pupils here are going to be coming back and having that walk through memory lane. Oh I think so there's many we've been unearthing so many pictures from through the decade class photographs and the children are more excited than many because and there's my mum there's my dad there's my auntie so already we're seeing familiar faces it's quite unusual to see how many of the mums and dads are just like the children now you can actually see the resemblance did your mum go here yeah i'm a mum's sister uh, and have you found some pictures of them yeah and what does she remember she told you anything about what she remembers about being at school here well not much stuff but she said it was very different to now like how it is now in do, school do you think she was naughty at school no. <laughs> Tell me about what you've been doing. Uh, we've been doing about 1950s. And what have you learnt about that decade? Uh, that Elvis sung Hound Dog. Do you want to give us a rendition of that? Do you know how that song goes? You ain't nothing but a hound dog, yeah. <laughs> Rocking all the time. Love it. What else have we been doing? Those pictures? Yeah, we've done... Uh, everyone painted a picture about an important <laughs> person in the 1950s. And... Uh, some people join the Queen, Elvis, happened? Marilyn Monroe, Audrey Hepburn. And what happened with the Queen in the 1950s? Uh, she got coronated in 1953 and she became Queen in 1952 at the age of 25. What do you think school was like in the 1950s here at Williston? Well, it was, I think it was quite small, um, different to now. Would you like to have been here then, do you think? Mm. Teachers might have been a bit stricter then. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the way to know if someone's rich is if they had rotten teeth from the rich chocolate. Really? <laughs> and has it been looking through all those photographs? Have you found some funny ones? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so important, Mrs Burton, for all the children to be involved in this? Oh, I think, I mean, the history of our school is so vital for them to know that it's not just now that there were um, a lot of times and events that went on before now. I think history is so important for us all to know because it affects our future. And Williston is, is so key in this community, isn't it? Mm. I mean, how, how is the community responding to this? Oh, it's great. I mean, we hope we'll see this afternoon <coughs> loads of people coming and joining in the fun. And already parents who are picking children up from school have popped in and had a little look. And, oh, I remember. And we've had so many people giving artefacts. I mean, when we walk around the school, you'll see there's so many artefacts that have been brought into the school for us to show and share. It's been great. Shall we go and have a quick look at some of them? Oh, let's, yes. 
Right, so here we are in uh, the sort of the foyer area. What have we got here? This is our introduction, so we've got just a little snapshot of every decade of Williston through the decades, so just a little taster of what you will see. We've got um, a report here Ooh. from the 1960s. I don't know whether this lady will turn up, but thankfully it's quite a good report, so I'm sure she won't be too bothered. We've got letters from the official opening... We've got newspaper articles from different decades. We've got photograph of the official opening on November the 17th, 1955, <coughs> and a photograph of what the classroom looked like on that first day. And that's everybody in the whole school. Oh, is it? Really? Yeah, because it would say they're only, what, 48 yeah. until January. 14, I wasn't there. They look pretty happy though, don't they? They do. Right. That was our old classroom. Was yeah. it? What decade do you think these are from? Ooh, uh, ooh, that's a really good question. I would say, I mean, that looks fairly early. I mean, was I, that's, that camera there, 1950s? Is that yeah. that one? Yeah. Um, I'd say that's probably 1950s as well. There's the first Yeah, I don't know what iPod. that is. The first mm. iPod. Oh, my goodness. You can't put that on a history shelf, the Mrs. Burton. I'm afraid you can. Things <laughs> move so fast <laughs> nowadays. I think the iPhone 5 is history now, isn't it? <laughs> oh dear. Right, so let's carry on up here. Oh, welcome to the 60s. And, uh, yep, some pictures. Some pictures here of them. Oh, brilliant. Some great outfits. Are any of you on here? Yeah. Oh, this is you, sir. This is me. This is me. Oh, there you are. Oh, brilliant. Me Armstrong. Flower power. So we're going into this, this classroom. Is this is your set. Okay. Sixties. See, even I don't remember all of this. We also yeah. did some cutouts of fashion. Oh my goodness, they're huge. We done something like We drawn about someone. We drawn about someone that we called event. Would you like to wear clothes like that? No. No. <laughs> I'd like to wear Not that very groovy, colourful top. That was too. Yeah. Flower power. Sitting in the morning sun. Any more? Is that all we're getting? No, we're not getting it, don't you? More 1960s. Moon landing. Oh, yeah, very important thing that happened. It's amazing to think there were people in this school at the time that that happened, mm. isn't it? And in 1950s, it, yeah. they sent the, uh, Russia sent the first dog Dad. to the moon. Buddy Holly died in 1959, Elder the day the music died. Oh, we've got some music going now. Mrs Burton getting her funky groove on. I mean, there's no doubt about the enthusiasm the children have got for this. What do you think they've, they've got from the whole process? Oh, just learning together and the excitement of sort of... Different decades are exciting. Apart from just what's going on in the school, how the school has changed, just learning about the life of different decades is very exciting for the children. They've thrown themselves into that with great gusto. And uh, which is your favourite decade? I would have to say the 60s. Aww. Not that I knew anything about the 60s. No, far too young for that. Happy birthday, Wilson School! Thanks as always to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. 
For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or clickshore.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.